Anybody other than me just feel like that was just a sweet moment? If you can sit down, please sit down. <laughs> Worship team, that was awesome. Maybe it's Amanda. Yeah. I mean, no, I'm, I'm, Amanda, thank you. That, you know, it's great when you see new people just rise up and, you know, whether it's a worship team, whether it's greeting at the door, you know, thank you, Devon, for the challenge. It is. It's just saying, man, God's been prompting me and it's time to step up and do. And that, that's just good stuff. And so thank you, worship team. That was just, I don't know, I, I, I really, truly appreciated that this morning. It just really felt like, you know, just a sweet moment in the presence of God. So thank you guys so very much. But hey, do me a favor. Open your Bibles. Turn on a Bible. I encourage you to get to a Bible because it's important that you follow along and see what I'm, uh, it, that, that it's not just me making this stuff up. And so we're going to be in John chapter 13 again today. And as I said, at Easter time, you know, we, we finished up Easter, but once we, as we've been going through the book of John, it just happened to land on that Easter time, you know, Easter's over, but we are starting the Easter story. And today we are in John chapter 13, looking at Judas's betrayal. And uh, have you ever known someone who has pretended or acted one way, but found out they were a completely different person? Isn't that just like a stab in the back? I mean, I mean, they they duped you for months or years, maybe even decades, and you just find out how the, how did not know that. That's Judas, okay? And that's what we see with Judas today. And, and um, today, this is one of those texts where probably all of us have read it. We all know the story of Judas betraying Jesus. And what I did not want to do as I prepped this message, as I studied this, as I read through these verses, I did not want the familiarity of the verses to just close your ears off. I didn't want you to be like, oh, I heard that, been there, done that, give me the t-shirt, let's just go home now. I didn't want to just regurgitate the text. I didn't want to just go through it and just go, well, here, you know, that was Judas. That doesn't really, I wanted to say, what could we learn from this? And that's what we're going to look at today is what can we learn from Judas's betrayal? And I want to look at four specific things that you and I can learn from the betrayal of Judas. And so here's the first thing that I want to see what we can learn from. And it's this. Anyone can appear to be saved, but still be lost. Anyone can appear to be saved, but still be lost. This is what we are seeing with Judas. All right. Judas is now been with the, the other 11 disciples and Jesus, Jesus for three years. And in those three years, if you were probably even to go out into the community and talk to people and say, hey, um, do you think all 12 of the, the disciples were real followers of Jesus? You'd probably get a general consensus. Of, well, yeah, they all hung out with Jesus. They, they, they did what Jesus was doing and everything. And and, and you probably would get a general sense of the community that, that Judas, along with the other 11, had it all going on. But here's the thing. Judas just didn't deceive the people of the community. He deceived the people of the core. He had 
the other 11 disciples convinced all the way up until he got up from the supper and left that he was one of them. These other 11 disciples did not have a clue of the reality of who Judas was. Because if you look at verse, 30, verse 21... It says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of who he spoke of. Now think about that. You are in a small, intimate group, 12 people, and Jesus says, one of you are going to betray me. Now you would think, after three years something would have been red flagging. If you know someone well enough and they are misbe, if they're not acting right, can you get a sense of it? You're like, there's a red flag here. There's something going on with you. I don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on it, but something's wrong with you. You would have thought in three years, these guys, as much time as they spent with each other, somebody would have been like, Jesus, I've got, I've got to talk to you. Judas just is acting a little meh. He's, he's a little off. I'm not sure what it is. Can, I, I, no. Jesus declares, one of you is going to betray me. And they're like, what? And they're looking around at each other. And in fact, if you go to the other gospels, it's, they start asking, Jesus, is it I? Is it I? They're, they're, they're like... Is this in me? They had no clue. If you look down at verse 23 now, it says, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved, that general consensus that John's referring to himself. I always thought that was kind of interesting. Judas is like, the disciple that Jesus loved, moi, that's me. I just won't call myself, but the, the consensus is that John's speaking of himself here. And so one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was, rec was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to, him and to, motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking of. So even Peter, pretty much the primary leader of the, of the 12, he doesn't have a clue. He's like, hey, John, ask him. Peter doesn't know. Judas was good. Judas was able to convince these other 12 men, or the, of the of other 11 men, I'm like you. And he was able to convince them. And even up here to the very end, they still did not know. But here's the thing. Judas may have been able to fool the 11 disciples, but there's one in the room whom he couldn't. Any guesses? Jesus. Jesus knew who Judas was. In fact, even in the beginning of John, it says, didn't I choose you 12? One of you is even a devil. Even in the beginning, Jesus knew who Judas was. Judas could fake it for the 11 but he could not fake it in front of Jesus. You see, Judas appeared to be 
a follower of Christ. He appeared to be a believer in Jesus Christ, but he never was. Think about that for a moment. Jesus calls these 12 men. Now, we don't read in Scripture when he called Judas. But we know that there were times where he would see Matthew. Matthew, come and follow me. James and John, Peter, why don't you guys follow me? And there was a time when he came to Judas. And he said, Judas, come and follow me. Be part of my 12. And Judas begins to follow him. And in three years, Judas ate with Jesus. In three years, he listened to Jesus teach. In three years, he saw all the miracles. In three years, he saw the mercy and the compassion and the love of Christ for the 12 and for other people. He saw how Jesus treated these people that the religious leaders rejected. He saw this. He experienced it. And in all of that, still an unbeliever. He appeared to be righteous. He appeared to be saved. Jesus washes here in chapter 13. He washes the feet of the disciples. And Jesus knows the heart of Judas. Because if you look at verse 8 again, we, we saw this a couple weeks ago. Jesus is getting ready to wash the, the feet of the disciples. And it says that Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered them, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is basically saying that, that he's teaching them. A, that, remember, I, I said this is a spiritual point that he's trying to teach them. It's not about the feet themselves, but washing them spiritually. He's like, Peter, I've got to wash you. You've got to come to know me. Through me, have your sins washed and cleansed. And then Peter says in verse 9, he says, Lord, not my feet only, but wash my hands and my head. Give me the bath. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. And that you there is plural. And he's talking about now, he says, all of you are clean, but not every one of you. He's like, there's one of you who's unclean. There's one of you who has never come to saving faith in me. There's one of you, you've pretended for three years. You've deceived these guys for, 12, for three years. But there's one of you who has not been washed spiritually. I've washed your feet, but your spirit is still dead. One of you is still unclean spiritually. And that's why now, after he says that, he goes into verse 14. And then he starts talking to them about the importance of washing each other's feet. And he's like, I've given you this example that you should do to one another. And then when you look at verse 17, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He's setting these guys up to help them to understand that you're going to be doing this in the future too. Not just in the here and now, in the supper time, but when the church starts, you need to do this stuff. But look at verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. Now, Jesus just keeps laying it out here. 
He's like, all of you are not clean and not all of you are going to do what I just said. Not all of you are going to be washing one another's feet. Not all of you are going to continue this mission that I'm giving you. Not all of you. Because one of you is still unclean. And this is the reason why Jesus knows this. Because if you look at verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen. Now, when he says, I know whom I've chosen, number one, that's not talking about like election or anything like that. He's talking about choosing the 12. And when he says, I know who I've chosen, he's not talking about, I know your name. He's like, I know you. I know who you are. I know what you're like. And here's the reality of Jesus. I know your heart. I know what's truly inside you. Because you and I, you know, the Bible says that men look at what? The outside. We look at you and we, we, you know, we can look at you and go, wow, you are a pretty godly person. Wow, you do got it going on. You are too sexy for your shirt. How in the world did you do that? But Jesus doesn't do that. What does the Bible say God looks at? The heart. Jesus is like, I know you 12 and I know all 11 of you have come to know me and you are washed and you are cleansed but there's one of you you are still unclean he knew judas judas had the other 11 all duped and all deceived and he convinced them that he was on their side but jesus knew him he knew his heart he knew what was really inside of him. He knows you, Judas, are still unclean. You are not a believer. You have never had your sins washed. You have never truly come to the place of surrendering your life to me. He never did. He was still an unbeliever and always was an unbeliever. Now, Fast forward to our time. It is no different. There are people who sit in churches. There are people probably in this church who can fool all of us. And we look at each other and, wow, we, we show up to church and we all are, are real good godly people. But the reality is you and I can convince other people that we are on fire for Jesus but do you want to know the one person you and I cannot fool? Jesus. Because here's the reality. We can convince everybody else that we are truly saved, but Jesus knows if you are truly saved. Because there are people who, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, he says there are people who have an appearance of godliness but deny its power. And when Paul says you have an appearance of godliness, but deny its power, denying its power is you keep denying Jesus. You keep, you have an appearance. See, there are people who come to church, people across this country going to church today, having an appearance of churchy, but are still lost, who do not know Jesus Christ. There are people who do religious things, and are still lost. 
There are people who can make the great claim and exclamation. I grew up in the church and went to Sunday school every Sunday and are still lost. There are people who simply have an appearance because the apex of my faith is I went to church. And if that's the apex of my faith, if that's the, 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 what, what mountain am I, what mountain am I thinking of? The big, big mountain, Everest. If that's the Everest of my faith, I went to church. We need to do as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 5, examine yourself to see if you are truly in the faith. Loved ones, listen. You can have an appearance all day long and you can fool your neighbor. And you can convince everybody around you that you are really godly. But listen, if you have never truly asked Christ, you are still lost. Here's how you really can determine whether or not you truly are a believer in Jesus Christ. Here's how you and I determine and can know that we know that we know I am a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. I have a conversion story and it leads to a changed life. That's it. A conversion story. There should be something about you. You should be able to go and go, you know what? I remember I used to live for myself. I did everything for myself. It was just about me, myself, and I, and I lived in my sin. I didn't care about anything. I just lived for self. And then you heard a message. You heard somebody talk to you. You heard a pastor. You heard something. But here's the message you pretty much heard. You're a sinner. And your sin will separate you from God for all eternity. Jesus Christ came and died for you died for your sin, and if you will accept him as your savior, you will be saved. You heard that message, and something resonated in your heart. And you were like, whoo, that's me. I'm a sinner. And you made a decision. You said, Jesus, come into my life. Be my savior. And you accepted him as your savior and Lord. And at that moment, something happened in your life. You started to change. You weren't perfect by any means, but like the Apostle Paul talks about in the book of Philippians, he's like, I want to be perfect, but I'm not there yet. He goes, but here's what I do. I forget what is behind, but I keep pressing on to make it my own. You see, that's my conversion story gets me on the progression path. It gets me on the pressing path. It gets me where all of a sudden it's not about me. We just sang a song. Make room. I surrender it all. That's the conversion life. A converted life is Jesus is my savior. Now all of a sudden, we still think about self. We still are prideful. We see that with the disciples. But something's different. Now my, my true desire is for who? For Christ. For God. My true desire is I, I want to be more like Christ. I want to act like Christ. I want to try to talk like Christ. I want to try to be like Christ. 
I want to live out his word. I don't want to just go to church and hear and go, oh, that was a good little message, and then just live life. But I want to go, wow, I want to put that into practice. I want to be different. I want to act different. I want That is a converted life. If you don't have those two things, if you don't have a conversion story, if you can't go and go, I remember when I accepted Christ and now my life is different. If that's not you, you are still pretending. You have an appearance, but you do not have Christ. And you need to come to the place where you acknowledge, man, I, I come to church and I've I've been religious, but I don't think I've ever believed in Jesus Christ. There's no greater truth than to have your eyes finally opened and go, wow, I am 45 years old. I have spent a lot of time in church, but I have never confessed Christ. And maybe today I need to do that. You see, Judas never did. Where the other 11, they were washed. And so the first thing we can learn from Judas is Anyone can have an appearance and still not be saved. And that's a sad reality, though, if you think about it, how close a person can come to salvation and still be lost. Here's the second thing that we can learn from Judas's betrayal, and it's this. Horrible circumstances don't alter God's sovereignty. Horrible circumstances do not alter God's sovereignty. So in verse 18, again, he says, I'm not, speaking, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I've chosen, and here it is. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who, ate, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is quoting Psalm 41, verse 9 there. This happened to King David. All right, David had, had this really good friend. I can't even, I can't even, I tried my hardest. You go to, you got to go back to like Samuel to read the story. But the name of his friend, I couldn't pronounce whatsoever. So I'm not even going to try. It was like, something like that. But this dude, this dude betrayed David. And David ate, ate, ate bread with him and basically stabbed David in the back, betrayed his friendship. And Jesus is quoting that verse. It, he's like, that verse is fulfilled, gentlemen, in your presence. He's like, and, and the idea of lifting your heel up against someone was a sign of disrespect. It was like, I, I'm betraying you, and I'm going to disrespect you. And so Jesus is like, I have... The, 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 the friend that I have broken bread with, not just here, but for three years, he has broken bread with Judas. And Jesus considered Judas a friend, a loyal confidant, and yet Judas betrays him. And Jesus is saying to these guys, listen, guys, um, this has not caught me off guard. This didn't surprise God the Father. God the Father's not like, oh, well, my, are you kidding me? Judas is going to betray. Oh, I didn't see that one coming. He's like, no, guys, um, I'm saying this to you. So when you look back on this, you're going to realize Scripture was fulfilled. He's like, 
what Judas is doing here is fulfilling scripture. Now, if you look at verse 19, Jesus says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. The more literal translation is that Jesus says that you'll believe that I am. Do you remember the last time I am was used? It was in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, when Moses is like, hey, who will I tell the, 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 the Egypt, you know, the Israelites who you are? And he says, I am. I am. And Jesus is like, guys, listen, right now, when all this takes place, you're not going to understand it. And he, kept, he keeps telling this. You're not going to understand what I'm saying to you right now. You're not going to get what I'm saying to you right now. But in a mo- in, in, down the road, when everything is done, you're going to have a ah, moment. Your eyes are going to be open. You're going to go, got it. Now I understand. What Judas did, it didn't catch God off guard. God knew exactly what he was doing. What Judas did not, did not thwart the authority of Jesus in any way. It did not alter or change the sovereignty of God in any way. God, despite these horrible circumstances, God was still sovereign. And it did not surprise him. Jesus is trying to tell these guys this. Because they're going to experience something that they have never thought of before. One of their own is going to betray their master. And it will rock these guys. And Jesus is trying to tell them. Hasn't caught me off guard. And it hasn't caught the father off guard. And he's trying to get them to understand that you're going to have to trust in the sovereignty of God through these horrible circumstances. And here's the the reality is this teaching, what Jesus is teaching them here, is going to come to play in multiple times throughout their life. These guys, and then also the Apostle Paul, is going to experience horrible, horrible circumstances. And through it all, they are going to have to come back to this one little nugget of truth. God is Sovereign. And I can trust him. Loved ones, it's no different for you and I today. This is why you and I need to, you know, Jesus keeps reminding them, hey, I'm still in control, guys. The Father is still in control. And and, and you see the scripture reminding us all the time about the sovereignty of God. That's why you and I need to hear messages like this, like repeated all the time. Because the reality is, when we lose track of the sovereignty of God, anybody other than me hate horrible circumstances? I hate going through hard, fiery, difficult, trying times. When we look at it and we're like, what in the world? Why did this have to happen? Now, here's the thing. When you and I cannot trust in the sovereignty of God through all and every horrible circumstance. When we, when we lose sight of the sovereignty of God, that's when we start to waver in our faith. That's when all of a sudden we start to go, I can't trust God. 
this is when we start to lose it. This is when we start to walk away. This is when we throw our hands up and say, forget this stuff. I don't want it anymore. If that's the way God is, forget God. And people walk away all the time. The sovereignty of God. So many times, the reality, if we're, we're honest, we believe, we feel, and I believe we think that God is accountable to us. That God owes us a reason why. That God owes us an explanation. Here's why this had to happen. And we almost demand and command like, God, you better come down and show me. Sometimes we need to have a Job moment. Because even though, here's the reality, when you think about Job, and this is not even my, I didn't have this in my notes, it's just popped in my head. When you read Job, the first couple of chapters of Job, he's doing really well. I mean, he's lost all of his children. He's lost his money. He, he, his health is just going down the drain real quick. His wife is basically, you know, dude, curse God, cuss him out, get it over with, die. He's like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not, gonna, I'm not cursing God. I'm gonna, he, God. God brought me into this world. He can take me out. He, I got, he's holding it fast. But as it progresses through the book of Job, Job has his moments. He starts to come unraveled a few times. His friends are like, dude, you know, if you weren't such a sinner, you wouldn't be so bad. And he's like, I haven't sinned. I don't know what's going on. And I don't know why God's doing this to me. He's unraveling a few times. And he's starting to say some things where, where it's almost like God's in heaven listening to it all. And God's starting to tap his foot. He's like, I'm going to listen. I'm going to keep listening. And then finally God's like, okay, that's it. I can't listen anymore. And God's just like, hey, Job, let me ask you a few questions. And if you read like the, like the end of, of, of Job, the last few chapters, it's not like one or two questions. It's like a, like a thousand two questions. And all of the questions have to be is, is determining the sovereignty of God versus the frailty of man. And, and God's like, hey, Job, um, just one question. Where were you when all this was founded? Where were you when I built this? Where were you when I, and he just like, ding, 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 goes down the list. And basically, Job's like, nowhere. <laughs> I, well, I wasn't born yet. And basically, God's just setting him up like, then who are you to tell me? God is sovereign. God is sovereign, loved ones. And no matter the horrible circumstances, it doesn't change. It does not alter. It does not deflect the sovereignty of God at all. I want to read... And I want you guys just to listen. I want you to close your eyes for a few moments. Just close your eyes. Don't fall asleep on me. But I want you to listen just to these words from Psalm 46. Very familiar words. But this, I believe, this psalm just gives us an idea when we are facing horrible circumstances. It says, God is our refuge and strength. 
a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spears. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. You see, that's God. And God reminds us and he keeps reminding us, you have got to trust me. When it doesn't make sense, trust me. When you don't have an answer, trust me. When you don't know where your life is going to go, trust me. When the circumstances don't make sense, trust me. When they don't align with your game plan, trust me. In the horrible circumstances, you and I have got to be able to come back and be able to know and say, God, I trust you. You see, I wonder if, if Jesus is telling these guys, here's who I am, because he knows them. If you remember, he had to show them and give them an, an illustration of humility and what it meant to serve one another because he knew their prideful hearts. He knew how often they argued, how much they always wanted to be number one. And so he had to teach them and show them, hey, you've got to be number two. It's not about being number one. Now he has to remind them, guys, when you look back on this, you're going to know that I am he. You're going to know that I was God in the flesh. And I wonder if he's telling them this because he knows them. Not only did he know the heart of Judas, I wonder if he knew at that moment in a matter of a few hours, Peter, you'll be, you're going to deny me. I wonder if in that moment he knew the heart of the other 10 and go, you know what? You all are going to flee. You're not even going to stick around when I'm on the cross. I wonder if he knew that in their heart, when it was all said and done, that they would lock themselves in a room and be living in despair with no hope of going, oh, woe is us. Our leader's gone. I'm going to go back to fishing. What's the point? There's no reason to live anymore. Let's just go back to the way it used to be. And Jesus is trying to tell them, boys, listen to me. My sovereignty has not changed. And the father's has not changed. Can you trust me? Can you trust in the sovereignty of God? Sometimes that's hard and very difficult. The things that God may allow into our lives. But can you trust in the sovereignty of God? 
Here's the third thing about what we can learn from the betrayal of Judas. Shocking failures must not derail your faith. Shocking failures must not derail your faith. Look at verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one I am sent from. He's basically giving them a little little picture of the mission he's giving them. Remember in, in Matthew 28, he gives them the full commission. Go into the world, preach the gospel, get people saved, teach them, make disciples, baptize them. That's the full mission. Now he just has given them a little glimpse. Guys, I'm sending you. And the person I send, if someone receives you, they receive me because they're going to receive what you're saying about me. And so you, you speak about me, they receive what you're saying, they receive me. And when they receive me, guess who they're really receiving? The Father, because he sent me. He's giving them a little preview of what's to come. But why? I wonder if Jesus was maybe looking and going, will there, this breach of trust cause them to stumble? Will the, you know, the, 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 the 12, I mean, yeah, they, they argued amongst each other about who was the first, who was best and all that, but there was a solidarity between them. They were a close-knit group. And now all of a sudden, one of their own is stepping out and just not saying, I'm leaving. He's leaving and is going to betray their Lord, their Savior, their Master, their friend. And Jesus is trying, I believe, teaching them and saying to them, guys, despite this horrendous, heinous fall that's going to happen, this failure that's going to take place, you still have a mission. It hasn't changed. It, it, it's still true, guys. And it's gotta, it's gotta move on. You're, you're gonna have to, you, you're gonna have to go. You can't allow what Judas is about to do to stall you. You can't sit there and go, oh, I can't believe Judas did that. Oh my gosh, I feel so betrayed. He betrayed Jesus. I feel, I mean. He's like, you can't. You gotta keep moving. There's a mission, and I'm sending you. And I'm sending you so people will receive what you have to say so they'll receive me. Because I want them to receive me so they can have the Father. Don't stop the mission. It is no different for you and me. I don't know about you, but I get discouraged when well-known pastors fall. And we have seen it a lot. Just moral failures, leadership failures, and they just crash and burn. And the problem with that is the effects it has on the average, ordinary, church-going person or the unbeliever. 
For unbelievers, it's just another notch on why I don't go. This is why I don't be a Christian. Too many hypocrites, man. Your leaders can't even get it right. Forget that. I don't need to be a Christian. It gives people more reason to not have faith. But I also think it causes people in the church. There are people in the church that would be like, you know what? Forget all this, man. I'm tired of hearing about, you know, this pastor falling, this pastor falling, this ministry leader falling. What in the world is happening? Man, I'm just done with this. I'm just, I just want to quit. And people stall. People walk away and it cripples their faith. But sometimes it's just even closer at home. It doesn't even have to be a, you know, a famous pastor that falls. Maybe it's your best friend, a family member who just falls in the ditch. I mean, think of someone you know that were just going along fine, going to church, serving, involved, engaged. Man, just seemed like they just loving Jesus. And then out of the blue, it's like as if they blew their front right tire and the car just goes, crash. And they crash right into the ditch. And the problem is they don't get up out of the ditch and go, oh, I'm okay. No, they stay in the ditch. And they're like, oh, I love this car crash in the ditch. I think I'm just going to live right here. And you wonder and you go, what in the world happened? How, 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 did, how does that happen? How did they, 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 they were doing so well. Why in the world did they fall into the ditch? Well, the problem with that is sometimes we now become so focused on what they are doing or what they are not doing. And we focus all of our energy on them. And the problem with that is it can become a slow eroding effect to our faith that it begins to hurt our emotional state, our mental state, our spiritual state. Because our focus is no longer on Christ. It's on, oh my gosh, I got to change this person. I got to get him back. I got to do something. And we focus all of our energy that it can hinder us. That doesn't, doesn't mean we, we, we don't act concerned. It doesn't mean if God gives us an opportunity that we try to talk to them, we don't stop praying for them. But the reality is, I can't stop moving. I've got a faith to live. I've got a mission to accomplish. Jesus has commissioned me to live for him, to advance the gospel. I've got to keep living for myself too. I got to make sure my faith is strong. My faith is moving and I am promoting and moving the gospel forward. I can't end up in the ditch with them. Jesus is telling me these guys, listen guys, you got a mission and Judas is going in the ditch. You can't go with them. You can't be derailed by him. You can't derail your faith because he is going to betray you and me. And sometimes when we see a pastor fall or a loved one or a friend, we feel betrayed. But you've got to keep moving forward. You have a mission. We have a mission. And we got to continue that mission. And then lastly, the last thing we can learn from Judas's failure, and it's this. The Lord gives us an opportunity to repent, 
but we have the freedom to persist in our rejection. The Lord gives us an opportunity to repent, but we have the freedom to persist in our rejection. Look at verse 25. So John, leaning against Jesus, says, Lord, who is it? In verse 26, it says, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had eaten the morsel, Satan entered him, and Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this. See, still, just we don't understand what's going on. Some thought that because Judas was... Judas had the money bag that Jesus was telling him, go buy what we need for the feast or that he was going to give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Here's what we need to picture here is Jesus knew the heart of Judas, knew he was unclean, knew he wasn't saved, knew what he was going to do. But he kept extending grace after grace after grace. At any moment in the three years, Jesus could have been like, dude, I am so done with you. You're done. You're, get, get out. I'm going to go find someone else. He could have done that. He didn't. He kept Judas around for three years. At any point, he could have told the other 11, guys, I just want you to know Judas is going to betray me. Because every time Jesus spoke of being betrayed, it was kind of like, you know, just kind of, hey, this may happen. He could have said Judas is going to be the one. And probably the other 11 would have taken Judas outside the, bed, you know, the woodshed and done it to him. But he didn't. This night, on the night of betrayal, Jesus, they were coming into the upper room. Before they got to the house, Jesus could have said, hey, you 11, you go head up. I'll be up there in a second. I got to have a conversation with Judas. And he could have said to Judas, Judas, I know what you're going to do in a matter of moments. You know what? I don't want you in here. This is going to be an intimate time with me and the disciples, and you're going to disrupt it. So why don't you just go do what you got to do and leave us alone? And, and we'll see. He didn't do that. Peter comes in. Andrew comes in. One by one, Judas along with them. They all start sitting down. Now, remember, they're not sitting at a table. They're reclining on the floor. And Jesus is the main host at this point. He, he's the man of the hour. In ancient Israel, in ancient Middle East, Eastern times, the person who got to sit to the left and to the right of, of the host was a privileged place. It was a place of honor, a place for close friends to sit. Guess where Judas is next to Jesus? Because he's close enough where he can take the bread and give it to him. Judas is next to Jesus in a position of honor. Now, when he takes the bread, yes, he's, John asks, hey, who is it, Jesus? And he says, whoever I give this bread to. Yes, it was to designate who the betrayer was, but it was more than that. Because not only was the position next to the host a position of honor and, and privilege, but the, usually the host to 
honor the guest sitting next to him would take a piece of bread and that would, person would be the first one to eat. It was an act of friendship. It was an act of, hey, I'm going to de- show you honor as the, as the, as the, the, desi- like the, the honored guest. Take the bread first. That's what he does with Judas. Blows my mind. Judas has already been prompted by Satan. He's already got it in his head. This is what I'm going to do. And Jesus knows the heart of Judas, knows what's about to do. And what is Jesus doing? I'm extending friendship. I'm going to extend grace and mercy and love to this man because I want to believe that even in the last moment, something in his heart could change. But it doesn't. Jesus washed all the disciples' feet, including Judas. I sit and think about that when Jesus was down on his knee washing the dirt off of his feet. I wonder if he was like, oh, Judas, if I could wash the dirt off your heart. I'm cleansing your feet and they will be washed and cleansed. Oh, Judas, if only I could wash the heart. Judas, if I could wash what's really going on in you. If I could wash away your sin, Judas. But for three years, Judas experiences the love of Christ, the mercy and the grace of Christ all through his ministry. Judas got to experience the exact same things the other 11 experienced. The other 11 finally came to a place where they, who am I? You are the Christ, the son of God. They believed in who Jesus was, but not Judas. Day after day after day, every miracle, every teaching, Judas continued to say no. And he And here's the phenomenal thing about Jesus. Jesus has simply just kept putting out the grace. He just puts out the love. He just puts out the the, the mercy. He just puts it out there. But he gives all 12 of them the freedom to receive me or to reject me. And Judas just kept saying, no, no, no. Don't want it, don't need it, and does not become a believer. Judas heard Jesus teach about money and and coveting and and, and all this stuff, but yet he kept stealing from the treasury. He heard the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus and what he taught about, about eternity and belief and forgiveness, and he kept rejecting it. Time after time after time about eternal life, eternal death, believing in him, not believing in him. And and Judas continued to persist in his unbelief. I don't want it. The same sun that can melt ice can also harden the dirt. Listen, loved ones. It's the same for you and me. Judas had a window of time, and that window was about to shut that night. Because if you notice the last three few words, and it was 
night. It was just not physically dark. It was now spiritually dark. And Judas was going to leave this room, never see the light again. Not the light of day, but the light of Christ. Judas, after he would walk out of that room, stamped and sealed his eternal destination once for all. Eternal darkness. It was night. And the reality is, you and I have a window of opportunity. And I have said this time and time again. I have preached the gospel in this church, in the book of John, time and time and time again. You have a window of opportunity while you are alive. And Jesus is, he, he, he still to this day, he's extending grace to you. He's extending mercy to you. He's extending his love to you. He's extending patience to you. He's got the Holy Spirit in this world that convicts us of our sin. That the Holy Spirit prompts your heart and my heart. Hey, you don't know my, you don't, you don't know the Savior. You need to come to the place of repentance. And that, that the message I, I've put out multiple times, I keep, here it is again. The same message. Today, if you do not know Jesus Christ, you are still lost in your sin. If you have never come to the place, if you do not have a conversion story, if you have never come to the place where you said, I am a sinner, and acknowledge that sin, and you've come to the place where you have just surrendered your life to Christ and said, Jesus, forgive me. Come into my life. Be my Savior. Start me afresh. And you started to walk with him, and your life has changed. And if you can't say that's you, you are still lost. And the window of opportunity is while you still are alive, you have the opportunity to say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Come into my life. Be my savior. That window closes when your heart beats the final time. When your eyes close in darkness and it is night. When that window closes and you are lying in that casket, you don't have any more time. Your time is sealed right now. Your eternity is set right now. And when you're laying in that casket, eternity is already done. And you have eternal darkness or you'll be in eternal light. That's it. But right now, you still have that freedom. And God is waiting patiently. The Bible tells us God waits patiently for us, wanting no one to perish. He wants all people to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And today, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you have heard this message and, and, and grace is, it just, the grace has been extended, the mercy keeps being extended, the love of God keeps being extended, but God loves you so much, he gives you the choice, the freedom. And maybe and some of you, you took advantage of that freedom and you said, Jesus, forgive me. Be my savior. But some of you are taking that freedom to continue to persist in unbelief. And you are continuing to persist to say no to Jesus Christ. 
And if you continue to persist day after day, you, if you have belonged to this church or maybe you have been part of churches before and you've heard the message and the gospel year after year after year and you continue to persist in that unbelief, it gets harder because your heart gets harder. Listen, today, Paul writes, today is the day of salvation because you don't have tomorrow. Tomorrow never comes. Today is the day. Today, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, this is your window of opportunity. If you don't know him, truly have never repented of your sin, quit pretending. Quit having an appearance of godliness. Quit denying the power of Christ and come to that place where you say, Jesus, come into my life. Be my Savior. Let's pray. you would just bow your head with me you know I don't know your heart in here just like the other 11 disciples they did not know the heart of Judas and they were fooled by Judas but not Jesus and you could sit in here and maybe you've sat in this church for years and you've had an appearance and you continue to fool people around you. But if you don't know Christ, you've never been washed of your sin by him. You're not fooling him. And he's the one you'll be accountable to. Not me, not your wife, not your husband, not your friend, not your neighbor, to him. And today, if you don't know Christ as your savior, today could be your day. Again, as we're going to close this song, make room. And maybe today you need to make room once and for all for Christ. Surrender self. Surrender your sin. And say, Jesus, I'm making room for you. Come into my life. I'm going to stand up here. And while we're singing, if you want to know Christ as your Savior and accept him, I'm going to challenge you to get up out of your seat. Don't feel embarrassed because... yeah. You're only doing it for Christ in you. Get up out of your seat. Come down here and pray with me. And we'll, we'll, I'll stand up here until the close of the song, and then I'll pray, and then we'll close the service.